the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, which happens to coincide, I should mention, with Garbage Day at the Rice's. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Gary Thomas. He's the author of The Glorious Pursuit. Becoming Who God Created Us to Be. He focuses on the virtues that we witness in the life of Christ and how we can cultivate them uh, to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit and conforming us to the image of the Son. So we'll talk with Gary Thomas about that right up uh, top second hour of today's program. So I hope you'll stay with us. We're also working on an interview with Olivia Enos, who is a senior policy analyst in Asian studies at the center of uh, the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. Uh, she is uh, going to join us, we're hoping, to talk about religious persecution in China. It is intensifying with uh, brainwashing camps for Christians and other religious minority groups. And I'm hoping we can snag that conversation uh, today, but I'll I'll keep you posted on that. First, uh, taking a look at Oregon Governor Kate Brown's announcement yesterday, saying that the end game for the state's uh, county by county COVID nineteen risk level restrictions, um, much of the economy can reopen statewide when seventy percent of eligible Oregonians sixteen and older have received their first vaccine dose. So she's given us a concrete benchmark. We assume it's concrete that when seventy percent of Oregonians uh, who are eligible for the vaccine receive it, uh, then she's going to make the adjustments and open things up here in the state of Oregon. In the press conference yesterday, she said with more than half of adults in Oregon, two million people ver- partially vaccinated, it's time to begin the next chapter of post-pandemic life. Now, I love the sound of that phrase, post-pandemic life. She would, went on to make the point that the reopening plan would mean once the vaccination target is met, an end to the capacity limits on public activities that have defined life for the past year plus. Gathering with people in groups, eating indoors in restaurants, attending services at a church, synagogue, or mosque in person would all be allowed, including, a reporter asked, the uh, Pendleton Roundup. Now, we know that Clark County's uh, fair has been postponed to next year. I don't know if that would be changed um, under the circumstances in Oregon uh, if um, that 70% threshold were uh, were met. Now, again, we're talking Washington and Oregon, apples and oranges, but I'm just saying they canceled their fair the um, Pendleton Roundup would be comparable, uh, so I wonder what how that would be translated in Washington if the principles were applied there. Anyway, um, it's a reversal for both the state and the governor. While cases have fallen steeply this spring in most parts of the country, earlier this month, Oregon and Washington were hit with a fourth surge of cases and hospitalizations, and that prompted Oregon's governor to announce a one-week indoor dining shutdown in 15 counties. Well, that didn't go over well, particularly with the restaurant industry. But the governor said, our hospitalization rates have stabilized, our infection rates are on the downward trajectory, and in the race between vaccines and variants, our efforts to vaccinate Oregonians are taking the lead. 
Uh, She said in a written statement, we still have some work to do to reach our 70 percent goal, but I am confident we can get there in June and return Oregon to a sense of normalcy. Well, the rollout of Oregon's reopening plan and vaccination target comes as rates of new vaccination have begun to slow nationwide. In Oregon, while there are some signs of a slowdown, the daily rate of first doses administered per capita is above the national average. Governor Brown said she believes the state can hit the 70 percent target in June. To date, 60 percent of eligible adults in Oregon have received at least their first dose, according to CDC data. President Biden has said he wants 70 percent of adults nationwide to have their first by July the 4th. Now, assuming a 25 percent drop in the growth of the vaccination rate statewide, Oregon would reach the 70 percent threshold by mid to late June, according to projections from the Oregon Health Authority. Well, the reopening plan comes with two significant caveats. The state will still require people to wear masks and maintain six feet of distance from others in some settings. And the governor said she's waiting for new guidance from the CDC before revisiting Oregon's statewide mask uh, mandate. All other health and safety requirements for counties under the risk level framework that Oregon has used for months will be lifted and counties will no longer be assigned risk levels. For schools, the governor said in the coming months, OHA will also be updating the state's policy to lift most restrictions based on CDC guidelines for the 2021-2022 school year. Now, let me just say that I am skeptical of some of uh, uh, the guidance that the CDC has issued. I know some of it has been politically influenced. Some of it is not based on science and deliberately so. I'm also skeptical of some of the restrictions that have been placed on Oregonians. However, I'm going to get the vaccination. Um, My skepticism, I think, is uh, healthy. I think it's informed, uh, but I'm going to get the vaccination. The only reason I haven't had it up to this point uh, is because with my uh, health concerns, I was advised as I'm weaned off some of the very powerful drugs that I've been on, um, that it would be in my best interest to wait, maybe have an antibody test and then have the vaccine. So in the next couple of weeks, I'm so happy to say one of the drugs that is particularly um, challenging, I will be weaned off off of that uh, entirely and I can move forward. So I think it, there is a is reason for healthy skepticism on some of the guidance that we've been given, some of the counsel, some of the decisions that have been made. Uh, yet, given that what I believe is healthy, informed skepticism, I am going to move forward uh, with the vaccine. Uh, I know others are choosing not to do so. Um, and I think they too can make uh, solid arguments, at least some who have thought this through and done their research, uh, why they're choosing not to do so. I'm not advising one way or the other, but I, I am somewhat frustrated with some of the guidance that we've seen. Some very credible, credible medical professionals and scientists who have pointed out the flaws uh, in the public policy that we've seen move forward and the influences that have been less than um, scientific, if you will, uh, that have informed and influenced that advisory. So all of that said, in Oregon, 70% is apparently the uh, the magic number for things being lifted and moving forward, the path to reopening in the state. Well, in other news, fuel shortages have widened across the East Coast as consumers continue to panic buy with a fallout from the cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline last week by Russian ransomware, uh, the group called DarkSide. The 5,500-mile pipeline system, it transforms more, uh, transports rather more than 100 million gallons of gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, heating oil per day 
or roughly 45% of the fuel consumed on the eastern seaboard between the Gulf Coast and the New York metro area. Colonial Pipeline Company said on Monday that it's aiming to substantially restore its system by the end of the week. Let's hope that's uh, that's possible. Gas Buddy Senior Petroleum Analyst, uh, rather analyst Patrick DeHaan, he noted that Monday's gasoline demand soared across the country. The East Coast reported a 32.5% increase in demand on Monday compared to the previous week, followed by the Midwest at 16.2%, the Gulf Coast at 13.1%, the Rocky Mountain region at 6.6%, and the West Coast at 8.4%. And that's an increase in demand as of Monday. Well, GasBuddy, which operates apps and websites based on finding real-time fuel prices at more than 140,000 gas stations, is predicting that the national average for gas prices could hit $3 per gallon within the next week. Of course, here in the Pacific Northwest, that's not altogether surprising or unusual. Well, that would make for the highest level of prices seen since 2014. However, the tech research company attributes the increase to the economic recovery as associated with COVID-19 pandemic rather than the impact of the disruption. Well, in other developments, the White House has uh, detailed their uh, comprehensive Colonial Pipeline response, and Colonial Pipeline was using a vulnerable, outdated version of Microsoft Exchange, making the uh, ransomware possible. Larry Kudlow says the cyber hacking of the Colonial Pipeline in Hamas uh, the shooting war with Israel are linked. And uh, as time permits, I want to explain what he means by that. It actually makes sense, as far-fetched as it sounds, just by making that statement. New York Times has been panned for claiming the pipeline cyber attack caused no hike in gas prices or long refueling lines. And Colonial Pipeline is sparking panic buying, leaving more than a 1,000 gas stations across several states without fuel. Well, the White House says Israel's actions work against a solution to the crisis. We'll tell you more about that when we return in a moment. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the plans to evict dozens of Palestinians from East Jerusalem fuel this latest uh, round of um, salvos from both Israel and Gaza and violence in either country. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll return in a moment. And in the second hour, we'll hear from Gary Thomas, author of The Glorious Pursuit, Becoming Who God Created Us to Be. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, we'll hear from Gary Thomas, author of The Glorious Pursuit, Becoming Who God Created Us to Be. And we're hoping uh, an interview we're pursuing with Olivia Enos will also take place. She's a senior policy analyst in Asian studies at the uh, Davis Center for National Security and Foreign Policy. We'll look at religious persecution in China. It's intensifying there with brainwashing camps for Christians. At least we know how to pray. Well, the White House says the Israeli actions are working against a solution to the current crisis uh, between uh, Hamas and uh, Israel. The White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, she said that plans to evict dozens of Palestinians from an East Jerusalem neighborhood work against U.S.-Israeli interest in finding a solution to the conflict and condemned extremism that is inflicted violence on both communities. Well, the press secretary reiterated the administration's support for a two-state solution. 
President Biden's team is communicating a clear and consistent message in support of de-escalation, she told reporters. That is our primary focus. The president's support for Israel's security, for its legitimate right to defend itself and its people is fundamental and will never waver, end quote. She condemned rocket attacks against Israel by Hamas and other terrorist groups, but highlighted the rights of Palestinians as well as Israelis, saying we believe Palestinians and Israelis deserve equal measure of freedom, security, dignity and prosperity. And the U.S. officials in recent weeks have spoken candidly with Israeli officials about how evictions of Palestinian families who have lived for years, sometimes decades in their homes and of demolitions of those homes work against our common interests in achieving a solution to the conflict in the coming days. As Muslims gather with family and friends to celebrate Eid and dawn together to mark the beginning of Shabbat. Let us uh, affirm that all people of faith deserve to enjoy these important celebrations without fear of violence, end quote. Well, tensions, as you may know, have risen in recent weeks between Israeli police and Palestinian protesters over the eviction plans by another flashpoint. Uh, in the old city has been the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, the third holiest site of Islam and the holiest site of Judaism, which refers to it uh, as the Temple Mount. Hamas, the militant group ruling the Gaza Strip, had given Israel a deadline to withdraw its security forces from the Al-Aqsa compound. And when the deadline expired, fired a barrage of some 600 plus rockets into Israel, setting off air raids sirens. Well, Israel responded with airstrikes on Gaza, killing 28 people, including 10 children according to the Wall Street Journal and a Hamas leader. The Israeli military said three Israelis had been killed by Hamas rocket fire. The military said it was investigating reports that children had been killed and some casualties could have been the result of rockets sent from Gaza that exploded before reaching Israel. In other developments, Hamas lobbed hundreds of rockets in 24 hours. Israel responded by attacking targets in Gaza. Speaker Pelosi and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez comments on airstrikes in Gaza and Israel underscore the divide among Democrats, each occupying a different end of the continuum. Netanyahu is calling a state of emergency after violent clashes in Lod and protesters supporting Israel and the Palestinians on, again, opposite ends of the continuum clashed in New York City. Meanwhile, Matt Tabi says some media outlets once challenged the spy state. Now they're agents of it. Well, the journalist blasted members of the media for their transformation from being challengers to what he refers to as the spy state to becoming agents of it. Ty B uh, wrote a scathing piece on his uh, Substack, arguing that news companies are pioneering a new brand of vigilant reporting. Uh, by partnering with the spy agencies they once oversaw. He began by recalling WikiLeaks 2010 release of U.S. government secrets from the war in Afghanistan, which he noted that outlets like the New York Times, The Guardian, and Der Spiegel helped in exposing the documents that were devastating to America's intelligence community and military, adding that such revelations later inspired former NSA contractor Edward Snowden to come forward in 2014 to expose the agency's surveillance program, resulting in Pulitzer Prizes for journalists Glenn Greenwald, Jeremy Shaw, and Laura Poitras. Well, fast forward seven years, Julian Assange is behind bars and may die there. Snowden is in exile in Russia. Brennan, Clapper, and Hayden have been rehabilitated and are all paid contributors to either MSNBC or CNN, part of a wave of intelligence officers who flooded the airwaves and op-ed pages in recent years, including the FBI's Asha Rangappa, Clint Watts, Josh Campbell, former counterintelligence chief Frank Figluzzi, and former deputy director 
Andrew McCabe, the CIA's John Cipher, Phil Mudd, Ned Price, and many others, uh, Tybee wrote. In other developments, the New York Times is calling out the CDC for misleading data on outdoor COVID transmissions, and Washington Post has named Sally Busby as its executive editor. Meanwhile, Liz Cheney was defiant in her floor speech ahead of the House GOP vote to oust her as conference chair. She was defiant after being ousted as well. A Duncan employee has been accused of throwing a fatal punch after a customer allegedly used a racial slur. And a Six Flag theme park guest says she was kicked out and harassed over her too short shorts. A Missouri bar has responded to customers' outrage after a bartender crumpled up a military ID calling it fake. Apparently it was not. And Colorado police have ID'd six victims from a birthday party shooting, saying the suspect was upset because, well, he wasn't invited. Well, Yankees' Phil Nevin has a breakthrough case of coronavirus, according to the team. Toyota's profits nearly doubled, beating expectations, and Florida has declared a state of emergency, but the Sunshine State doesn't need to panic. That's what they're telling their people. Well, a Texas judge tossed out the National Rifle Association's Chapter 11 bankruptcy petition on Tuesday, allowing a lawsuit brought against the group by the New York Attorney General to move forward. U.S. bankruptcy judge Harlan Hale says the NRA did not file the bankruptcy petition in good faith, arguing that the filing was made in an effort to avoid the lawsuit by State Attorney General Letitia James' office. The suit aims to dissolve the group over allegations of financial impropriety. The question the court has faced with the is whether the existential threat facing the NRA is the type of threat that the bankruptcy code is meant to protect against. Hale wrote, the court believes it is not. Well, James Suit claims the, that top NRA officials, including Executive Vice President Wayne LaPierre, uh, directed millions of dollars from the organization for personal use and unlawfully granted contracts to friends and associates. The organization has denied the allegations and claimed that the suit is politically motivated. The state attorney general's office and attorneys for the NRA former advertising agency, Ackerman McQueen, had requested that the court toss out the Chapter 11 case, claiming that the petition was filed in order to avoid the dissolution case in New York. James celebrated the ruling in a tweet on Tuesday, saying, A judge has ruled in our favor and rejected the NRA's attempts to claim bankruptcy and reorganize in Texas. She wrote, The NRA does not get to dictate if and where it will answer for its actions, and our case will continue in New York court. No one is above the law. The organization is headquartered in Virginia, but incorporated in New York. The NRA filed for bankruptcy last January, hoping to leave New York and reincorporate in Texas over what it called a corrupt political and regulatory environment in the Big Apple. And a federal circuit court uh, reversed a judge's decision to dismiss a juror who sought divine guidance from the Holy Spirit during deliberations and told fellow jurors he was told by a higher power that the defendant was innocent. Well, the 7-4 to four ruling from the full 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals allows for a new trial for the defendant, former Representative Corrine Brown, a Florida Democrat, who was uh, convicted and served prison time for a conspiracy and fraud scheme involving a bogus scholarship charity. Well, a majority of the judges on the 
court reason the juror identified only as juror number 13 in court papers was able to deliberate based on the evidence and the law despite his uh, comments to fellow jurors about seeking religious guidance. Now, jurors may pray for and believe they have received divine guidance as they determine another person's innocence or guilt, a profound civic duty, but a daunting task to say the least, wrote Judge William Pryor, Jr., a Bush appointee. He cited a prior case that recognizes prayer as a part of the personal decision-making process of many people, a process that is employed when serving on a jury. Judge Pryor, writing the opinion for the court, said the low court judge was wrong to conclude that juror number 13's statement that he received guidance in response to prayers were categorically abridged too far. Richard Garnett, a a law professor at the University of Notre Dame, said courts should be reluctant to remove a a, a, a deliberating juror. Regular people talk in a wide variety of ways about their thought process, and it would be strange to remove one juror who used the language of religion and religious inspiration while protecting another who spoke in terms of gut, uh, intuition, or conscience. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. A reminder, coming up at the top of the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Gary Thomas. His book, The Glorious Pursuit, Becoming Who God Created Us to Be. How to, do, to incorporate and develop the virtues of Christ into our everyday life. Coming up at 5. Well, sending hundreds of rockets towards civilians, Hamas has stepped up its attacks on Israel. The Wall Street Journal points out that the Biden administration will also have to resist pressure from its left flank to distance the U.S. from a key ally engaging in self-defense. Senator Bernie Sanders tweeted on Tuesday that we are seeing how the irresponsible actions of government allied right wing extremists in Jerusalem can escalate quickly into devastating war, end quote. He must think Israel is firing those rockets on its own civilians. The White House has given the Democrat uh, left virtually everything it could hope for since the inauguration day. But if there's one issue on which the administration still sounds more like the old guard, it's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It has not endorsed the... uh, uh, the victimhood with Israel's res- being responsible for every wrong, uh, the distorted interpretation of the conflict as a dichotomy of privilege and victimhood uh, with, it, with uh, Israel responsible for every wrong. David Harsony points out that Israel has all the right uh, enemies. Uh, there is uh, also violence within Israel as Arabs inside the walls revolt. I mentioned earlier about um, Uh, destroying some homes there. Philip Klein points out that Hamas's decision to exploit the current unrest in Jerusalem and shoot rockets into the highly populated Tel Aviv region is an escalation by the terrorist group that is likely to trigger a swift and forceful response. Ariel Davidson says Hamas spends its money on rockets, tunnels, and concocting ways to kill Jews. If they spent uh, aid... um, uh, on health care and infrastructure, Gaza might be different, but it's run by terrorists. This isn't Israel. This is Hamas. Um, and the conflict continues. The border crisis is growing worse here back at home. Uh, from the story, federal law enforcement at the U.S.-Mexico border stops one, stopped rather 178,622 people trying to enter the country illegally in April, the highest number in more than two decades. Byron York points out and asks, didn't some Democrats say the Biden administration has the border situation under control? 
I guess you need to define control. Meanwhile, Katie Pavlich uh, says the President Biden is AWOL as the planet erupts. She begins gas stations in nearly two dozen states are running out of fuel after a Russian cyber attack on the colonial pipeline system this week. Islamic terrorist organization Hamas is waging war against innocent civilians in Israel, where many Americans live and work. The White House called a a lid um, at 3.45 p.m. this afternoon. From another story, so where um, exactly is Joe Biden, the man who is ostensibly the president of the United States? No one can be can uh, seem to figure that out. He's given no public statements about the two major crises of the last 24 hours. His surrogates have sent mixed messages and Jen Psaki uh, chastising Israel for being attacked by Palestinian terrorists today. In regards to the pipeline, the administration claimed that it was a private sector matter in one of more uh, the more surreal moments of Biden's presidency. I guess there weren't enough fake no- uh, nooses hung to get the FBI to jump into action. You can find more on that at Red State. With inflation and unemployment high, Democrats see problems with extending unemployment benefits as workers refuse to go back to work. They're making more money with that additional $300 a week that the federal government is is, uh, paying. From the Wall Street Journal, White House economists say there's no measurable evidence that the $300 federal unemployment bonus is discouraging unemployed people from seeking work. They were rebutted by Tuesday's Bureau of Labor Statistics, JOLTS survey, which showed a record 8.1 million job openings in March. Stocks have taken a tumble on inflation worries as well. Well, fuel shortages have spread along the East Coast as the fallout from the cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline hits southern states the hardest. Another story notes the pipeline transports 100 million gallons of fuel every day, including 45 percent of all the fuel consumed on the East Coast. It uh, produces its uh, products range from various grades of gasoline, diesel fuel, home heating oil, jet fuel and fuels for the U.S. military. Well, the CDC's claim on outdoor COVID transmissions is deceiving. The 10% number may be closer to 0.1% from the story saying that less than 10% of COVID transmission occurs outdoors is akin to saying that sharks attack fewer than 20,000 swimmers a year. The actual worldwide number is around 150. It's both true and deceiving. The federal court has decided that a juror can seek divine guidance. They reversed a judge's decision to dismiss a juror for that very reason. Consumer prices have increased 4.2% to the highest level since 2008. And in government and politics, the U.S. Education Secretary has opened emergency grants to undocumented and international college students. You can read more on the Washington Post. The numbers have undercut the Biden administration's claim on ghost guns, the Washington Times writes, and the crisis is worsening. Again, 178,622 attempted uh, crossings of the U.S. border illegally in April, the most in two decades. Job openings leapt above 8 million in March. That's a new high. And Missouri and Tennessee joined states cutting pandemic payments. Other notables, the wokest place on earth, Disney, they're mounting an internal campaign against white privilege, organizing racially segregated affinity groups. A judge has dismissed the NRA bankruptcy case and a blow to the gun group. Well, on this day in history, 1943, during World War II, Axis forces in North Africa surrender. 1949, the Soviet Union lifts the Berlin blockade, which the Western powers had successful, had succeeded rather in circumventing with their Berlin airlift. 
1958, the United States and Canada signed an agreement to create the North American Air Defense Command, later called the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD. 2008, on this day in history, a 7.9 magnitude earthquake in China's Sichuan province leaves more than 87,000 people dead or missing. 2017, dozens of countries are hit with a huge cyber extortion attack that locks up computers and holds users' files for ransom at several hospitals, companies, and government agencies. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, North Korea says it was dismantle its nuclear test site later in the month in what analysts describe as a mostly symbolic event that wouldn't represent a material step forward to denuclearization. House Republicans ousted Representative Liz Cheney this morning in a closed-door vote from the number three spot from leadership, but the Wyoming Republican remained defiant on the way out. Cheney had remained steadfast in her opposition to former President Donald Trump, who, by the way, is no longer president, and his dangerous lies about the 2020 election being stolen from him, putting her at odds with the other House uh, Republicans who wanted to move on from the January 6th riots and uh, unite the party to win in the 2022 midterms. Cheney was removed by a voice vote and took a swing at Trump after the Capitol meeting. I will do everything I can to ensure that the former president never again gets anywhere near the Oval Office, Cheney said after her ouster we have seen the danger that he continues to provoke with his language we have seen his lack of commitment and dedication to the constitution and i think it's very important that we make sure whomever we elect is somebody who will be faithful to the constitution end quote well republicans felt that cheney continued her continued comments against the former president and conflicting statements against leadership were playing in democrats hands and becoming a distraction she already survived a vote of no confidence in february but instead of treading lightly after the uh, warning shot, Cheney continued to double down on her rhetoric, angering her colleagues. So on Wednesday, Republicans were quick to move on fr- uh, from Cheney, with Representative uh, Madison Caw- uh, Cawthorn sending out a gleeful tweet after her removal. Other Republicans said Cheney was too focused on attacking the GOP than pushing back on President Biden and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's policies. For months, it's been clear that Cheney is unfit for any leadership role in the Republican Party. Uh, Representative Matt Rosendale from Montana said conservatives uh, tried to fix the problem in February but weren't listened to. Even so, I'm glad we've recognized this reality as uh, a conference. Turning the page on her disastrous tenure will allow House Republicans to focus our messaging on the fight against Pelosi and Biden and their agenda. An election on who will replace Cheney will occur at a later date. Representative Elise um, Stefanek, a Republican from New York, is the front runner and has the endorsement of uh, Trump and the top two GOP leaders, Representatives Kevin McCarthy of California and Steve Scalise of Louisiana. Surprisingly, um, she voted uh, less in lockstep with President Trump than did Liz Cheney during his uh, four years in office. Rather interesting bit of a, a statistic. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour of today's program, a conversation with Gary Thomas, The Glorious Pursuit, Becoming Who God Created Us to Be. The book is published by Nav Press. I mentioned earlier in the program that Larry Kudlow said the cyber hacking of the colonial pipeline and Hamas shooting war on Israel are linked. Now you might scratch your head. Huh. Well, Kudlow... Um, uh, says that President Biden is being tested and just taking the punches. Well, he um, 
is the host of the Larry Kudlow program, and he theorized on Tuesday that the cyber hacking in the U.S. South, Southeast is absolutely linked to the Hamas shooting war on Israel, noting that President Biden is being tested and just kind of taking the punches. He said, and I'm quoting, we've had a shooting war in the Middle East. We've had a breakdown on the colonial pipeline from Russia cyber hacking. We've had more evidence that overly generous unemployment benefits are keeping people at home rather than work. We've got a big stock market sell off and another three hundred and fifty dollar Biden dole to state and local government unions. And we have um, we can't cut taxes. So let me just step back for one moment and review the bidding. I'm going to say this. I believe the cyber hacking in the U.S. Southeast is absolutely linked to the Hamas shooting war on Israel. I see it all of one piece. Now, again, you might wonder. And President Biden is being tested. And so far, he has not shown any strength. Look, these ransomware cyber hackers are just, in fact, Russian cyber hackers. As General Keene said earlier today, they may be moonlighting, but make no mistake, they are Russian cyber hackers, and this is their boldest strike yet. And if we don't do something about it fast, much more is coming. That's point number one. As far as Hamas is concerned, Hamas, of course, a terrorist state of Iran. Iran itself is a terrorist country. Now, who's Iran's biggest backer? You guessed it, Russia. At every turn, Russia makes mischief on behalf of Iran and against the U.S. and Israel and the Abraham Accords. By the way, let's give China some credit, too, because they are a large financier of oil buyer Iran. You may say my view is far-fetched, but I don't think so. Rookie presidents get tested. It happens all the time, and so far, I'm not seeing President Biden stand up for Israel, nor am I hearing him blast Iran, nor am I hearing him hold Russia accountable. See, there is a pattern here. They are knocking us back and forth. Mr. Biden is just kind of taking the punches. Now, again, it may sound somewhat uh, far-fetched to try to connect those dots, but there is a sort of strange logic to uh, the way he is connecting them and this period of testing of President Joe Biden. You can make of it what you will, but I thought it was an interesting perspective and I thought I'd share it with you because I think you're bright enough to come to your own conclusions. Well, the Consumer Price Index, which tracks the cost of a variety of consumer goods as well as housing and energy prices, has risen 4.2% from a year ago, notably higher than the estimated 3.6%. It is the largest yearly increase since September of 2008. Even controlling for food and energy prices, the CPI was up 3 percentage points higher than the estimated 2.3%. Well, the um, CPI increase from March again, controlling for food and energy prices, is the highest since April of 1982. Well, this data comports with America's everyday experiences. On Tuesday, the average price of a gallon of gas rose from $2.99, the highest figure since November of 2014. And keep in mind, that's the average. We live in the Pacific Northwest. We always pay higher. Well, the news also contradicts the Biden administration's line on the risk of inflation, that it's nearly non-existent. Well, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen responded to questioning on NBC's Meet the Press on the second of this month, firmly saying, I don't believe that inflation will be an issue. A few days later, she doubled down from behind the White House briefing podium. I really doubt that we're uh, going to see in uh, an inflationary cycle. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, she sounded less confident on Tuesday, telling reporters that the White House takes the possibility of inflation quite seriously. Well, there is, however, no indication that the Biden administration will withdraw its American jobs plan from consideration or trim the $2.3 trillion in new spending proposed in it. Well, this newfound evidence of coming uh, inflationary wave also comes less than a week after a disappointing jobs report 
It was the U.S. economy uh, added 266 new jobs, and that number is expected to come in around a million. So it was, um, to say the least, disappointing. I mentioned the uh, airstrikes from Hamas. Well, apparently an Israeli airstrike has killed a top Hamas commander as Netanyahu vows the iron fist if needed. Well, an airstrike launched by Israel on Wednesday has taken out Hamas Gaza City commander, dealing a substantial blow to the Palestinian militant group's leadership. Basem Issa uh, is the highest ranking military figure in Hamas to be killed by Israel since 2014, according to the Associated Press. Now, Hamas confirmed his death in a statement. The armed wing of Hamas said Issa uh, was uh, killed along with a few of his fellow brothers of uh, leaders and holy fighters during the fighting that has been going on for two days in Gaza. Well, Israel's internal security agency said a series of airstrikes had killed Issa and several other senior Hamas militants, including the head of rocket development and cyber warfare, the head of rocket production and the Hamas engineering chief. Issa and several other commanders responsible for the different um, districts of the Gaza Strip formed Hamas Military Council, the highest body deciding on the group's militant operations. The Military Council is headed by uh, Mohammed Deif. Well, meanwhile, Israeli uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, at least Prime Minister for now, declared Wednesday that Israel will use an iron fist if needed to stop widespread protests by Arab citizens that have resulted in injuries, arrests and property damage. Netanyahu says Israel will stop the anarchy after deploying border police forces to claim unrest in recent days in the cities of Lod and Acre. Well, Israel's uh, president added that the country's Arab leaders are giving support to terrorism and rioting by staying quiet about an outbreak of unrest uh, in mixed communities. Reuven Rivlin said on Wednesday that the silence of the Arab leadership over violence in mixed Je- Jewish and Arab communities amounts to encouraging the rupture of the society amid the most severe outbreak of violence since the 2014 Gaza war. Well, Rivlin says Israel must pressure the rioters with a firm hand, restore security and order to all of us, also while fighting terrorism from Gaza without compromise. Well, in the Israeli city of Lod, a 52-year-old Arab Israeli and his 16-year-old daughter were killed early on Wednesday uh, when a rocket landed in the courtyard of their one-story home. Lod also saw heavy clashes on Tuesday after thousands of mourners joined a funeral for an Arab man who was killed the previous night, the suspect, uh, a Jewish gunman. Israeli media reported that the uh, crowd fought with police and set a synagogue and some 30 vehicles on fire. Well, outside of the region, Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson said he wants to see an urgent de-escalation of tensions between Israel and Hamas. Johnson tweeted on Wednesday that the United Kingdom is deeply concerned and urged leaders to step back from the brink. Meanwhile, the U.N. is warning full-scale war between Israel, Palestinians, uh, and the Palestinians after residential building uh, collapsed in one of the returned fire. Well, Israel carried out hundreds of airstrikes in Gaza on Wednesday after being struck hundreds of times by Palestinian militants firing rockets into Tel Aviv and Beersheba, according to the Israeli Defense Forces, amid videos showing a 13-story residential tower collapsing in Gaza, while a United Nations envoy warned of a large-scale conflict erupting. Terrorists in Gaza are firing a barrage of rockets into southern Israel, the IDF wrote on Twitter on Wednesday morning. In subsequent tweets, the IDF confirmed that it targeted a multitude of Hamas targets, including Hamas squads operating anti-tank 
tank missiles and posted a video when Israeli forces struck a terrorist squad preparing to launch an explosive UAV from Gaza into Israel. I think the bottom line is that there is concern that this may escalate to a uh, full-scale war, according to the United Nations. Um, Certainly reason to pray fervently for what's happening there at this point. You're listening to to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Gary Thomas. He's the author of The Glorious Pursuit, Becoming Who God Created Us to Be. We have since learned that Olivia Enos, we'd hope to have a conversation with her. She is a senior policy analyst in Asian studies at the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. We had hoped to speak with her about religious persecution in China that is intensifying. Uh, but she is not available, so we will not uh, share that conversation perhaps on another occasion. We will talk about what's happening in the church a bit closer to home as Lutherans have elected their first transgender bishop. The Vatican is weighing in on U.S. bishops' debate over denying communion to pro-abortion politicians and millions more Americans are turning to scripture during the pandemic, according to a new study. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Glad you're with us, especially because I'm uh, looking forward to a conversation with Gary Thomas. He's a best-selling author and international speaker whose ministry brings people closer to Christ and closer to others. He unites the study of scripture, church history, and the Christian classics to foster spiritual growth and deeper relationships within the Christian community. He is the author of um, Sacred Marriage, Sacred uh, Pathways, and um when to walk away. He asked the question in his latest book, uh, for those of us who want to um, live the life that we were created to, to live in Christ, do you want to experience Christ in new ways, but feel frustrated when nothing seems to work? Or are you discouraged by those uh, areas in your life that never change? Do you feel that you weren't, um, you're not really the person that you were meant to be? When we practice the virtues of Christ, and we'll talk about what he means by that, we become who God created us to be and experience Christ in a whole new way. In Glorious Pursuit, best-selling author Gary Thomas examines uh, lifestyle of Jesus characterized by virtues such as humility, um, generosity, love, and much more. And in the book, you'll discover the long-term change that comes from following Jesus and reveal his glory and how you live your everyday transformed life. I'm so looking forward to our conversation. Gary Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me back, Georgine, and great to have you back on the air. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that encouragement. Well, let's begin by just exploring the phrase, the, the glorious pursuit. What do you mean by the glorious pursuit? We all are pursuing something in our lives, whether we know it or not. We're giving our energies, our thoughts, our efforts over becoming something, achieving something, accomplishing something. And the glorious pursuit simply asks, is this what Scripture calls us to do as the highest life? The idea kind of came to me, to be honest, when I was with my wife. We were in Colorado. There's this thing called Iron Mountain Hot Springs. And it's this beautiful series of, of pools. We're going from pool to pool, and I'm guessing it was a bachelorette party because there are probably about eight to ten younger women, in, in, in my view, I'd say in their 30s. Mm-hmm. And they came into a pool that my wife and I were in, and they're talking. It was amazing about how much money they were spending, how much they were strategizing, just to keep looking as young as they already did in their 30s, which looks pretty young to us. And one of them said, yeah, all the Kardashians are doing this now. 
And it was astonishing. I had no idea. And and my wife finally leaned over and said, do you mind if we go into a different pause? Absolutely not. Let's go. So we did. <laughs> I remember my wife asking me, does it bother you that I'm just not focused on that and I'm not doing that? I happened to be reading one of my favorite writers at the time, William Law. He was an 18th century Anglican. And I'm paraphrasing him here, Georgine, but basically he said that believers should earnestly pursue humility patience, generosity, compassion, kindness, and virtues, here's the key, with the same intensity that those in the world pursue wealth, fame, worldly achievements, and physical beauty. And and I found so many in the church, those are the four things that whether we're Christians or not, we want to be wealthy, we want to reach that number for our retirement, we want a certain level of fame, certain level of worldly achievements we could be proud of, and to keep looking younger than we really are. And we spend a lot of money and we research. I mean, these people were serious about it. They could have given a PowerPoint presentation. (laughs) William Law says, as believers, we should say, no, the glorious pursuit is to become more like Christ, not to look younger than we really are, not to be richer than we are right now, not to have worldly approval, but eternal acclaim. Well, that I appreciate so much you're putting those two pursuits in um, juxtaposing them against one another because it does uh, put in bright relief the fact that we are all in pursuit of something. We may not be as mindful of what it is that our life direction is, but this call to pursue this this glorious pursuit, as you put it, really challenges us to to consider how important it is to reflect the character of Christ in everyday life. Now, pursuing Christian virtues, as you phrase them, is a spiritual practice. It's rooted, as you pointed out, in ancient times, but something we don't often talk about. Um, How do we get away from the culture's pursuit of things that are gratifying to us personally, but have very little eternal value? to what you've described is that glorious pursuit that con- that transforms our character as the Holy Spirit works in us uh, to uh, pursue these virtues. I think if we would take a step back and realize that the, the fear with which we approach financial security, the dread with which we face aging, the frustration with which we sense people noticing us and appreciating us or trying to – we'd realize – those pursuits leave us feeling empty and hungry and less than ourselves. And yet when we try to grow in what God calls us to grow, because his spirit helps us to grow, and what it means to live a life of humility, putting others before ourselves, patience, so we're not always frustrated and angry, compassion, so that we care rather than have hard hearts, courage, so that we're not ashamed of pulling back kindness so that we're looking for opportunities to do good. When we start to taste those virtues, we understand what they mean and then start to put them into practice. I think we're going to realize this is the life I was meant to live. It's like if, you know, if people go shopping and they try on all these clothes and they just don't quite fit, the size isn't right or the cut isn't right, but then you get that perfect coat and you feel like, I feel like I was born to wear this coat. I think the glorious pursuit is that life that we realize these other things that we're tempted by, in the end, they cause more stress, they cause more angst, they cause more fear, because God created us for something more than that. We have the opportunity to reflect the character of Christ, not just with our efforts, but the Holy Spirit working through us, and and we settle 
for so much less? Can I out-earn you? Can I look younger than I am? Can I be more famous on social media or whatever else will basically not matter in five years' time, much less 50 years' time? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you wrote this book. Um, there was a first edition. This is the second edition of the book. Some 20 years ago it first came out. What have you seen changed and what has remained the same um, considering where the culture is going and much of our attention has focused uh, and what God is calling us to? Yeah, well, because it's rooted in who Christ is and people and what are the virtues. The virtues are what the ancients and scriptures say. These are qualities that we see in Christ. We've mentioned a lot of them. And the whole point of the virtues is like spiritual bodybuilding. We often tell Christians we'll grow. And that, well, what does that mean? become like Christ. Well, that's so general, we don't know what it means. But what the angels would do, just like if, if anybody's familiar with bodybuilding today, you can build your biceps, your triceps, your shoulders, your legs. There are certain exercises with weights that you say, okay, this is what will help the muscle show. The ancients said, if we look at Jesus and we start to practice gentleness, or we start to practice humility, or courage, then then as we practice it, we become more and more like it. We have to know what it is, how to apply it, how to uh, put it into motion. And then gradually, we are literally shaping our souls. We're shaping our characters as we do that. I'll never become completely humble, but I can practice humility. And so a lot of those were the same as when I wrote the book 20 years ago. I think the mm -hmm. biggest difference was chastity, just because our culture, and look, I know this has been a big battle of years going back early 2000s and some of your things, but the way we look at sexual ethics today, mm -hmm. it, it changes. Not it used to be by the decade, and now it's by the month. Um, and and just upholding God's wisdom in in what is right, what is holy, what is healthy for our souls. And so that was the one that I mostly had to completely rewrite, just for a new generation to understand why the virtue of chastity is a life giving, freeing joyous existence over what the world offers today. You write about um, the difference between conversion and real spiritual growth. When one comes initially to faith in Christ, there is a glorious conversion that takes place. But what your book helps us recognize and to move into is real spiritual growth. Uh, and, and by embracing the virtues that you've mentioned and that you outline in greater detail in the book, we're moving towards spiritual growth. Explain why that's important, because I think for some of us, we, you know, I've come to faith in Christ. My my uh, residency in heaven is assured. What's the point of working toward developing one's character? Yeah. Well, too often we look at Christianity like retirement. We become a Christian and then we just retire and wait until heaven. And really, I think the biblical view says this is when we get busy. busy. It's like our first day at work. They show us to our new office. And now the work begins. And I know some people say, well, I, that, I don't even know if that sounds biblical. But let me quote Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Again, this isn't Gary Thomas speaking, the apostle Peter. And he says in Second Peter 1, verse 5, make every effort to add to your faith. Now, every effort, Georgine, you say not lackadaisical, if you have anything left over or sort of a side hobby. He said we should make every effort to add to our faith, and then he lists many of the virtues, and he goes on to say, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, which means this is a an ongoing pursuit. That's why I call it the glorious pursuit. It's not something that we achieve overnight. It's something that we live with, since they will keep you from being ineffective 
and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So just because we know salvation and we know Jesus doesn't make us effective and productive if we don't grow in the virtues. And that requires every effort. Then we're going to fall short of that. Um, Coming to Christ doesn't make everything okay. It's not the case that you pray a prayer of salvation and suddenly your cholesterol levels are perfect. And your BMI makes your doctor smile and says, you, you know, we have to work our bodies into shape. And somehow we've thought as Christians that we don't have to work our souls into shape. But the ancients and I believe scripture say, no, we do. And the glorious pursuit is really just that how to. Well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. This is a workable program for us to get there. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm talking with Gary Thomas. He's the author of many books, but we're talking about his latest, The Glorious Pursuit, Becoming Who God Created Us to Be, a great practical book to help us really appreciate the different virtues that we saw in the life of Christ and how we can become more like him as the Holy Spirit works within us and we pursue these virtues. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Gary Thomas. His latest book, The Glorious Pursuit, Becoming Who God Created Us to Be. Uh, Gary Thomas is a well-known author and speaker. He serves on the teaching team at Second Baptist Church in Houston. He's the author of the book we're discussing, The Glorious Pursuit, and he believes learning how to grow in the spiritual characteristics of Christ, like patience and gentleness, chastity, humility, or surrender surrender doesn't take your life from you. Instead, the virtues of God's sculpting uh, tools uh, by which he shapes us into the image of his son. So we're just delighted to introduce this tool to you as it is the second edition uh, of a book that I think is very timely uh, right now in the 21st century. And let me ask you how the pandemic and how life has changed over the last uh, year plus, um, how that makes this book even more challenging and relevant, I think, to those of us uh, who may be a bit stuck but want desperately to be more like Christ. I, I think one of the things that is interesting is that we're always focused on how we're going to get people into church, which which I get, you know, being a part of this teaching team in a large church here, what's not. When you talk about practicing the virtues, because COVID shut all that down, but when you talk about practicing the virtues, the focus isn't just on getting people into church. It's about the kind of people who come out of church. Hmm. And, and I think what the world needs to see is that people who have encountered Christ have a new kind of patience, a new kind of surrender, a new kind of courage uh, that is uncommon because it's birthed by the Holy Spirit. It's modeled on the person of Jesus. So when we face these issues, we don't face them like the world does, that there's, there's a different component there. There's a different maturity there now it's always on a spectrum we're we're all growing and and for some of us some virtues just seem so difficult to achieve and and other vices seem to take over but in the end the church together we should see it can we focus on the kind of people that are coming out of churches we should expect change it's not just about getting people to agree with us but getting people to see that there's something different about us that somehow they get this picture of jesus you know i remember back i'm I'm 59 which sort of places me but um there's a popular saying probably 20 or 30 years ago that you're the only picture of jesus that some people may ever see or you're the only bible some people may ever read and 
however squishy that may sound theologically, th- there's an element of truth in it mm-hmm. that some people that would never step into a church might see how we handle something like COVID and say, why do you have such calm? Why do you have such patience? Why aren't you afraid when you see what's happening financially? How are you able to go forward? Why, why do you seem so gentle with people that are frustrating? Why do you love everyone instead of showing the malice? You know, we're in a world where everybody's pitting against each other and going to battle. And, and it looks like you love everybody. I just want people to see that, that we're different because Christ is in us. So that then they ask, well, what is it? And that's when we exalt not our own growth, not that we are holy, but that it's Christ in us. Mm-hmm. And the Holy Spirit is available to everyone who will receive him. Yeah. In a culture today, we have a new phrase, virtue signaling. It's a negative thing. Um, Let's talk about the difference between what you're describing, which is wholly consistent with what the scriptures um, calls us to and what the Holy Spirit works in the life of a believer, not just making us nicer people or signaling our virtue. Can you help to make that distinction so we understand that this isn't just, uh, as you've pointed out, I think already, uh, trying to impress people into recognizing how good we are? Yes. Yeah. Christian spiritual growth isn't rooted in esoteric terms, not even really like humility. People could argue, what does it mean to be humble? Or what what does it mean to be kind? They're rooted in the historic person of Jesus. And that's what scripture and the ancients pointing us toward. We see how Jesus displayed gentleness. It's fascinating that before Jesus was born, the Bible predicted he would be gentle. That's Zechariah 9.9. Uh, Jesus affirmed that he was gentle in Matthew eleven twenty nine. I am gentle and humble in heart. In 2 Corinthians 10, 1, the early church remembered Jesus as gentle. Paul said, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I make my appeal to you. So the Bible predicted that Jesus would be gentle. Jesus affirmed he was gentle. The early church remembered him as gentle. Yet, Georgine, I don't know if you, if you stopped 100 people on the street I said, give me three words that describe the character of God. I don't know that a single person would say gentleness. Mm -hmm. So they're rejecting a God they don't know. They're rejecting a God that not as he reveals himself in Scripture and as he revealed himself through Jesus. And the the convicting part of that for me is maybe it's because they don't see us Christians as gentle. So when we don't want to become like Christ, we just want to hold our salvation card and say the work is done. We give them a false view of who Christ is. But if every Christian showed this gentleness toward others, they'd start to wake up and say, hey, wait a minute, there's something different. If we grew in the gift of humility, because Jesus was humble, he was God, and he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a man and became a servant and died on the cross, we would put ourselves like that. Um, If we would show the virtue of love, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that even people that we might oppose what they believe and we might oppose what they're doing, like Christ, we are still for them. We don't want them to be crushed or humiliated. We want them to come into the light and see the truth and receive the love and affirmation of God that we have seen and that we have received. And so when you live a life of humility and love and gentleness, that's where Christianity gets fun and filled with joy. And I'm just not sure that that's the version of Christianity that the world is seeing right now, and certainly not in the last year. Mm. The book is titled The Glorious Pursuit, Becoming Who God Created Us to Be. I'm talking with Gary Thomas, the author of this and some 20 other books. Um, You write that the virtues build on one another. 
Uh, do we have to master one virtue before we can begin to turn our attention to another? What is the process of incorporating these virtues? And again, we're not doing this on our own. The Holy Spirit has a role to play right. in in that. But uh, but how do we how do we move from one to the other, or do we incorporate them all at once? Explain in practical terms how we should pursue these virtues. Well, th- there are different models. Um, but it's helpful to be familiar with all of the virtues and then to realize how do I start to practice them because they do build on each other. It would be like somebody who does bodybuilding and builds up their upper body and never does their legs. It would really start to be funny, and maybe they couldn't support <laughs> building up their arms. And let me give an example here. If I grow in humility, it's difficult for me to, to adopt any particular vice. If I'm growing in humility, I can't steal from somebody because my, humility means putting somebody's needs before me. So I, I wouldn't steal from you. I'd rather go hungry than take something that's yours. I, I wouldn't gossip against somebody because, again, I'm not going to try to build my reputation by being funny with others, by demeaning um, someone else. Um, I, I couldn't certainly murder somebody because, again, humility is about building others up. And, and so as I grow in humility, it makes the other virtues um, easier to practice. And, and patience and gentleness are together. Patience is about not expecting everybody to be perfect. Gentleness is about treating people gently as they fall or after they fall. And so a lot of those, they color each other. It's this multi-layered mm-hmm. thing of really mature spiritual growth. Because there are times, you know, we, we talked about Jesus being gentle. I can imagine some people saying, well, what about clearing the temple, right? It's a question I get a lot, and here's what I'd say. The virtues are more like the Proverbs, where they're not laws. You know, there are certain laws in Scripture that says, do not do this, do not. But the, the Proverbs are general wisdom that most of the time are true. There are times you want to, I think we should be marked by gentleness more than anything else, but there are times when we have to stand up and be forceful for the cause of God. So we see Jesus was gentle most of the time, and yet when he had to be forceful, he could be. And so that's why they have to be tied to a person, not some esoteric principle, like something that Aristotle or Socrates would teach. A real historical person, how did he live them out, and what does that teach us about how we can live them out? Yeah, that's so good. Well, once again, Gary Thomas is uh, my guest. The book, The Glorious Pursuit, Becoming Who God Created Us to Be. Gary, thank you so much for the second edition and for taking the time to talk with us about it here today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Well, a Lutheran pastor from California was elected a bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, or the ELCA, on Saturday, becoming the first transgender person to serve as bishop in a major Christian denomination in the United States. Reverend Dr. Rohrer says, It's an honor to serve. Lutherans have once again declared that transgender people are beautiful children of God. Thank you to everyone who has been praying for me and my family as I accept this call. So how ought biblical Christians Pray for her. The question is being asked. Reverend Dr. Morgan Rohr has been pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in San Francisco and community chaplain coordinator for San Francisco Police Department. She became the first transgender person to be ordained in the Lutheran Church in 2006. And the statement says that she will be installed in September. 
at St. Matthew's uh, Lutheran Church in Walnut Creek, California. The ELCA uh, statement claims that they have nearly 3.3 million members in more than 8,900 churches across the 50 states and in the Caribbean region. They've known, they say, as the Church of God's work, Our Hands. And they say the LCA's roots are in the writings of the German church reformer Martin Luther. Well, the statement also notes that the ELCA emphasizes the saving grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, uniting uh, unity rather among Christians and service in the world. Well, over the years, um, uh, they have uh, morphed into a, a church that reflects a more liberal view, a more liberal take on the um, on the scriptures. Uh, the Bible is clear. There is a way that seems right to man, but the end is destruction. The Bible is also clear that God created male and female, and God is not the author of confusion. Uh, in fact, God created male and female in his likeness and image. Um, Roar also told Cosmopolitan magazine, using faith to uh, tear other people down is not good news. We need to be as loud and as angry as the people who want to declare that there are types of people that God can't love, which, of course, is not the heart of, of um, what's being suggested, but that the scriptures are very clear. Uh, there is conflict, um, and this certainly is the heart of it. There are no people that God does not love, and no biblical Christian believes that. Christ died for all, and all have sinned, regardless of what our gut may be telling us. Um, we all need a Savior and a Deliverer, not an affirmation of sin. This is clearly a matter of of the blind leading the blind, one critic says, an issue Jesus himself addressed in his teaching. Well, Martin Luther was clear on the issue of marriage and human sexuality. The Evangelical Church of Finland has taken a strong biblical and Lutheran position on marriage, and they have produced a comprehensive study on the subject. If you're a Lutheran and have further interest, you can check out that study. In Luther's large catechism, he says, God has established Marriage, it says it, but he's referring to marriage, before everything else and therefore created man and woman differently as our eyes prove. Not to commit um, knavery, but to stay together, to be fruitful, beget children, feed and raise them to the honor of God. Therefore, God has most richly blessed it more than other estates. Thus, marital life is no jest or presumption, but a serious thing and a matter of God's seriousness. For to him, all power lies in it. When one raises people that serve the world and promote uh, promote it in God's knowledge, blessed uh, blessed life and in all virtue and in fighting against wickedness and the devil, end quote. Luther also expressed this teaching in other texts, such as on married life and the exhortation of the Teutonic Knights. Now, not everyone is called to marriage, but the point being that man and woman, there, there are two sexes that, that uh, God embraces. He also wrote, for it is not a matter of free choice or decision, but an essential and natural thing. And I mention this because... Um, the new bishop or the soon-to-be new bishop it says that they embrace the teaching of Luther. Uh, for it is not, Luther wrote, a matter of free choice or decision, but an essential and natural thing, that whatever is man must not uh, must have a woman, and whatever is a woman must have a man. It is not a command, but more than a command, namely a divine ordinance, which is not our business to hinder or ignore. He goes on from there. But anyway, the takeaway is God has placed his work in our hands, 
And in fact, Jesus told us that we as his followers and empowered by his Holy Spirit would even do more than he did because we are scattered all across the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ was given in love to transform and deliver us from our sin, not to infirm us, rather affirm us in our sin. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that we may prove what uh, what is good and acceptable and perfect, the will of God. Well, gender dysphoria is neither good, acceptable, nor is it perfect in the, as the will of God. Uh, it leads to destruction. Pay attention to your colleagues in Finland. Um, critics are suggesting for Lutherans who fit into this uh, denomination and to Martin Luther, most importantly, all of us must pay must, uh, much more attention to God's word than to our gut. Meanwhile, the Vatican sent a letter to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops giving advice and warnings regarding a possible move by the American leadership to deny communion to pro-abortion Catholic politicians. In recent times, there has been much debate within the Catholic Church about whether to deny communion to elected officials who support or advocate abortion despite identifying as Catholic. Cardinal um, Ladaria, a prefect for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith of the Catholic Church, sent a letter uh, to uh, the USCCB President Archbishop Jose Gomez on the issue, which was first reported by America Magazine on Monday. Ladario warned that having a blanket policy to, de- to deny communion to pro-abortion politicians could present problems when seeking to maintain unity in the church. The formulation of a national policy was suggested during the uh, uh, visit only if this would help the bishops to maintain unity, Ladaria wrote, as reported by America Magazine. The congregation uh, notes that such a policy, given its uh, possibly contentious nature, could have the opposite effect and become a source of discord rather than unity within the uh, uh, Esco episcopate, I should say, and the large church in the United States. Well, the cardinal recommended that the bishops talk with politicians within their jurisdiction who opt a pro-choice position regarding abortion legislation, euthanasia, and other moral evils as a means of understanding the nature of their positions and their comprehension of Catholic teaching. Now, my guess is that has already occurred, and there's no question of comprehending Catholic teaching, but a political career moving forward in certain circles requires you embrace certain uh, political uh, subjects. Well, following the dialogue among themselves and the politicians, he suggests, uh, explaining that if they draft a document on the matter, it would need to express a true consensus of the bishops on the matter while observing uh, prerequisites that any provision of the conference in this area would respect the rights of individual ordinance uh, uh, ordinaries, rather, in their diocese and the prerogatives of the Holy See. All of that to say, unity would be considered more important than the teachings of the Church under his recommendations. Well, in June, the USCCB will hold a national meeting to consider a draft document that, if approved, would recommend that pro-abortion Catholic politicians be denied communion. If the um, uh, document is approved, and that's a big if, Uh, It would only recommend the denial of the Eucharist, which is the communion in Catholic terms, with local dioceses still being allowed to make their own rules on the issue. Well, Archbishop of California released a pastoral letter earlier in the uh, in the month in which he directed 
uh, directly told rather pro-abortion Catholic politicians that they should not receive communion. It should be their own choice, saying your Catholic ideas inspire you in your work to help those who experience discrimination, violence, and injustice, and you deserve the gratitude of your fellow Catholics and our nation for this service. But we cannot empower the weak by crushing the weakest, he wrote. Uh, If you find that you are unwilling or unable to abandon your advocacy for abortion, you should not come forward to receive Holy Communion. To publicly affirm the Catholic faith while at the same time publicly rejecting one of its most fundamental teachings is simply dishonest. On the other hand, Bishop Robert McElroy of San Diego said in February that denying communion to Catholic officials over their support for abortion was a very destructive idea. I do not see how depriving the president of our political leaders or our political leaders of Eucharist based on their public policy stance can be interpreted in our society as anything other than the weaponization of Eucharist. Uh, And he reported that um, position in crux. Now you're listening to the Georgine Rice show quick break and we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back with the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I want to let you know tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Linda Evans Shepherd. Her book is titled Praying Through Every Emotion, Experiencing God's Peace No Matter What. And then on Friday, we'll share headline news. We'll also take a look at the lighter side of the news and share the Christian outlook in the second hour. Well, over an estimated 10 million more Americans turned to the Bible in the past year. Then in years past, as one in four adults reported reading the Bible more frequently during the pandemic compared to last year. That's according to the American Bible Society's 2021 State of the Bible report. ABS released the first two chapters of its 11th annual State of the Bible report on Tuesday, documenting cultural trends in the realm of spirituality and scripture engagement in the in the United States. The data suggests that over 181 million Americans opened a Bible in the past year, compared to 169 million adults who used a Bible at least occasionally in the year before. The findings for the report, they're based on a survey conducted in January of this year, about 3,354 online interviews from a representative sample of American adults nationwide, as well as 91 additional responses from Gen Z youth. The sampling error is plus or minus 1.692 percentage points. Well, the study found that roughly 16% of American adults read the Bible most days during the week, up from 12% in its 2020 report. 34% said they read the Bible once a week or more, while 50% said they read the Bible less than twice per week or two less than twice per year. The report also states that 63% of uh, respondents reported their Bible usage was the same as the previous year. Although 9% said their Bible engagement decreased in the last year, 24% reported more frequent Bible reading during that time. Nine chapters from the report will be released throughout the year. The first two chapters of the book are available for download. In a Tuesday interview with the Christian Post, John uh, Farquhar Plake Uh, The director of the Ministry Intelligence for the American Bible Society said he believes Americans turned to God's word during the pandemic in a search for meaning and comfort. I think the data tells us that when people are at um, change points in their life and they're enduring stresses like we all have during the COVID-19 pandemic, we look for meaning and we look for comfort, he said. And I think for many Americans who in normal times would say, I've got this, I can handle everything myself, realizing during the pandemic, maybe they, well, don't, and they have really turned to God's word. They have found that uh, when they do that, 
they find comfort there. Well, elevated faith creates conver- uh, conversation starters, um, and that's uh, also a part of what they've discovered. They find wisdom in God's word. They find wisdom in other expressions of faith. Blake cited how Americans have faced a once-in-a-century pandemic and significant political and social unrest in the past year and believes those factors drove Americans to their Bibles. And one would hope that would also drive them to faith conversations with people uh, in their communities. Uh, however, our research shows that in the midst of incredible pressures, Americans are finding hope and resilience in the Bible. In a statement, Plague said, this marks the fourth straight year in a trend of Americans moving toward the Bible with COVID-19 encouraging many of us to look to faith for answers. There's an astounding opportunity right now for the church to answer our nation's pervasive trauma and pain with the hope and healing of God's word. The first chapter of the 2021 report focuses on the Bible in America. The second chapter focuses on the new normal and gauges how the COVID-19 pandemic has changed people's relationship with God's word. The report also showed a decrease of people classified in the Bible uh, disengaged uh, category, as well as a significant increase of 95 million American adults in the movable middle category of those who are exploring scripture sometime for the some of them rather for the first time. That's a significant shift of people who are reaching for scripture and maybe trying it, Plague said, about the uptick in the movable middle. Maybe they don't uh, have a deep habit with scripture, but they're giving the Bible a try, and we think that's wonderful. Well, the American Bible Society will release the following seven chapters of the state of the Bible between June and December of this year. Again, Plague said the increase in Bible engagement comes from people realizing they need uh, their need for Scripture after the stress and trauma of this past year plus. I think what's actually happening is people turn to Scripture when they have a need, and the overall upswing that is uh, happening around us is because America is enduring just a tremendous amount of stress. When you look at the number of people who have died during the pandemic and then look at the the relatives that have, the grief that our nation is enduring, this national trauma that we've experienced, in fact, global trauma that we've experienced as a result of COVID-19 is really unfortunate, but it is a catalyst to Scripture. People are asking the question, how do I cope with this? Where do I find strength for today and tomorrow? How do I get through all of it? Well, Plague added, um, he thinks largely that's the reason people are turning to Scripture, particularly within these last six months or so. It will be equally interesting to see as the restrictions are lifted, as the pandemic uh, fade is not the right word, but as more people are vaccinated and um, restrictions and so on are lifted, as Governor Brown announced earlier this week, if people will retreat from uh, Scripture if they will maintain their relationship with Scripture under those circumstances. And, of course, that remains to be seen. I have to say, during this challenging season for me personally, as my health struggles continue, uh, but with some improvement and some of the um, very strong drugs that I have been given, uh, I'll be weaned off in the next couple of weeks, which uh, makes other things balance out a bit better. I have found such solace and comfort in God's Word. Now, it's not as if I hadn't found that uh, prior to the health challenges that I'm facing, because I've always seen that. But, uh, you know, God's word is living and active. It's powerful. And it ministers to one's need at a given moment. It's it's really quite remarkable. You can have read through a portion of scripture and recognize the truth of it and simply moved on. And you read it another time, and it is so personal and relevant and poignant. And the Holy Spirit penetrates your heart and speaks to you in a way that ministers to the need of that very moment. And that's been my experience during this uh, this challenging season that really began for me 
in uh, mid-December and continues, uh, I'm told, for perhaps several additional months. I am so comforted by God's Word. I'm so grateful for God's Word and the Holy Spirit that gives understanding. I'm so grateful to understand who God is better, to understand how He uses suffering and challenging circumstances and unexpected events to shape our character and to accomplish His purposes. I'm just grateful for all of that. And while I can't say, in all honesty, I would have chosen this set of circumstances, I am grateful that God is using every single event to shape my character, to move the kingdom forward, to accomplish his purposes, and my love and trust uh, in him have only increased. I, I can say uh, with full confidence that God is good, that he can be trusted, and I'm grateful that more Americans are turning to Scripture, and I hope that remains as our circumstances change all across the state of Oregon and all across the country. I want to thank James Blend for producing Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.